The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. There's little sign of a sweeping deal to resolve the US-China trade conflict. Even a quick fix to some of the issues is eluding officials, and hoping for that fix probably misses the broader point that China's economy is undergoing profound internal change. If anything, tariff battles will only accelerate that change. Welcome to Benchmark, a show about the global economy. I'm Daniel Moss, columnist at Bloomberg Opinion in New York. Beneath the headlines, what's happening on the ground in China? And what are executives that have to make decisions doing about it? In the era of trade, slings and arrows, should we even be talking about globalisation? At least as far as we've come to understand the term. Francis Lim from Kohlberg Kravis Roberts spent some time in China recently and is co-author of a penetrating report called China, a visit to the epicentre. She joins us from Sydney, where she's head of the Asia-Pacific macro research team. Francis, welcome. Thank you very much, Dan. I'm very happy to be here, and so thank you for the invite. What was unique about this trip to China? It's been the epicentre of a lot for quite a while, or at least some of the seismic points. What's going on there right now? Well, I think you're very right. China has been the epicenter for a very long time. Uh, We have been, Henry McVeigh and myself have been traveling to China for many years now. And I think what's different now is this intense focus on trade and the tensions going on there where uh, US is imposing tariffs on China and China is imposing tariffs on the US. So we took a visit to Shanghai um, and we're heading to Beijing next to find out what's really happening on the ground. What's the view from China? Because a lot of the rhetoric we hear is from the U.S. and less from China. So we went there to learn more about how Chinese authorities are thinking about the trade issues. But not just Chinese authorities. You also talk to executives making daily decisions about how to deal with the headlines. Absolutely. And to me, that's the, that's the key way that you understand what's actually going on. When you speak to business leaders in China, they tell you what they're feeling on the ground. And that was what was different this time around. Previously, you'd always hear the policies that are being rolled out uh, from Chinese authorities, and it was very clear the direction they were going. As it pertains to trade, there was a vacuum of conversation. So unlike the U.S., where you hear daily comments coming from D.C., you don't hear that coming from China. So when you speak to the business executives, they tell you that things have changed. And that was what was so interesting about this visit. And you were getting that same impression from locals as well as expatriates? Yes, 
Um, the locals, I think, uh, the local business folk had a different view of what was happening and a very big, long-term structural view of the, the, the tectonic shifts, really, that are happening in the global economy and how the center of gravity, the center of economic functions are shifting. And they felt that was the, the core reason why we have these trade tensions today. The foreign nationals that were in China were more reacting to policies that were shifting as a result of these tensions. So we got a good flavor of what locals were feeling and what foreign companies were feeling. You're asking readers to look beyond the prospect of any short-term fix to end the trade dispute between the US and China. What's wrong with looking for a fix? This is our view, and it's my view as well. I think the reason why the trade tensions are here today is not so much because of trade as it is about broader issues. And the key issue that's different today is China has come of age. China now can make smartphones. China actually makes more smartphones than Samsung and Apple combined. Nobody talks about that. This is what's shifting. China is capable of doing a lot of things the U.S. is doing. The U.S. is trying to slow down China's progress, and the trade is a tool to make that happen, in my view. A lot of the domestic commentary in the United States does feel like it's in a time warp, Francis. (laughs) People talk about sweatshops. People bemoan that factory producing furniture that was once in North Carolina and now it's gone oh somewhere in China. In reality, that factory has probably moved on somewhere else from China, if I'm understanding you correctly. That's correct. So maybe about 10, 20 years ago, China did have a lot of factories manufacturing low-end goods. When they first entered the WTO, they were making t-shirts and toys, low-end goods with massive factories. Today, it's very different. What has been amazing is that you know that the U.S. developed a lot of the technology. The U.S. developed the iPhone. The U.S. developed the iPad. But what China has done is they have really mastered the use of technology that has been built by the U.S. And if you look at the progress they have made in terms of uh, Internet penetration, the use of phones and ride sharing and and even e-commerce, it has just leapfrogged the U.S. Ten years ago, they were at zero. Today, they're way ahead of the U.S. in terms of the application of new technologies. That's what this trade war is about. We need, or the U.S. feels they need to slow China down. That's not going to shift. And that's why I think the change that's happening um, is more structural in nature. The tensions will be more long-tailed than people think because the fundamental reason is that China is now um, a real competitor to major developed countries like the US, like Europe and Japan. Does that make China more resilient to a trade war than was the case a few years ago? Yes, absolutely. If you look at the amount of exports as a percent of GDP, it's fallen from more than 30% to hardly 18 today, which is not too far from where the U.S. is in terms of its trade exposure. So absolutely makes it more resilient. Uh, There is also a great resolve to continue moving forward. They're continuing to invest in education. They're continuing to invest in innovation. And in fact, as a result of the trade war, 
and the potential of losing um, supply of these precious semiconductor chips, which is the core of you know, a lot of the trade tensions, they have actually uh, raised a fund to accelerate progress in manufacturing high-end semiconductor uh, technology. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Francis, you cast serious doubts in this report over the future of global supply chains. Talk a bit about that, please. So if you think about the world 20 years ago, when China first entered the World Trade Organization, everyone would grow through expanding their export base. And that was uh, a really good strategy in terms of uh, expanding GDP growth and in increasing wealth in a lot of emerging countries. That was because uh, the U.S. was a major consuming economy. Today, though, the dynamic has shifted. China is a much more wealthy country today. GDP per capita is in the 10,000 range, and they have 1.4 billion people compared to America's 330 million. So when you do the math, within five years, China's consuming power will be greater than the US. As that consumption market shifts, the epicenter of growth and the dynamics there shift. And that's where I find it fascinating that even though there are trade tensions, there are a lot of things that are moving very um, rapidly, uh, which makes me very excited about the prospects on certain fields in China. But China also recognizes uh, that they are reliant on some countries for materials, and they're trying to make themselves self-sufficient. The trade war accelerates that. As you impose tariffs, you create inefficiencies in the market, profitability is hurt in companies, productivity is hurt in countries. If these tensions continue, the, the better way would be to insource a lot of the goods right from the manufacturing of things like semiconductor chips right to the end product of the smartphone. And that would all stay within China? That would all stay within China and China's trade partners, which are more uh, closely aligned. To me, that means that although the U.S.-China East-West trade may not grow as fast, in fact, we have seen signs that it has fallen off quite a bit, um, we think that the Asia regional trade will actually pick up because that cooperation between Asian countries will pick up. So there are beneficiaries of the trade tensions today, and that insourcing would come from um, supplies within that Asia regional supply network as well as manufacturing some of these items onshore in China. So let's say I make widgets in Indonesia. My widgets go somewhere in Malaysia, then somewhere in Thailand. They find their way to Taiwan, then 
over to the People's Republic of China where they're assembled and shipped back and I go to Best Buy in New Jersey and pick up my PC. So how does what you're talking about change that arrangement? The part of the supply chain that shifts is the part that probably um, goes to the US because that is the trade trade tension that's being discussed today. Uh, the, to me, the bigger issue in what's happening is what's happening between uh, how China looks at what trade total trade is relative to how the US looks at trade. And what you're identifying today is key, right? If you think about what uh, President Trump is talking about in terms of trade, he is only referring to goods sold from China and exported to the US. He's not talking about goods sold uh, to China from US companies that are based in China. And to explain that a little further, take Apple, for example. Apple sold $40 billion worth of iPhones in China last year. None of that is considered trade from US to China. Now, if you told the IRS that and told the IRS not to tax that, that wouldn't fly. But this is how uh, President Trump is looking at the trade issue. On the China side, they said, hang on, we bought 4 million cars from General Motors last year. The US only bought 3 million cars from General Motors. You didn't count that in your trade surplus or deficit because you made those onshore in China. So when you think about that supply chain, th those dynamics will shift going forward. Um, and to me, those are the areas that are most at risk. So the parts of the iPhone and the iPhone itself that is to be sold in China is made in China. And the iPhone that's bought in Brooklyn is put together from a number of places, none of which is China. Uh, some of it is China and some of it is the other Asian countries that flow through into China and onto Brooklyn as well. So there, there's a lot of supply chain linkages to get to that point, right, where you have a phone, at, like you said, Taiwan, Korea, Japan, they're all part of that supply chain linkage. And if you look at the inter-regional trade uh, of Asian electronics in particular, it's massive. Um, for a country like Singapore, uh, almost 80% of the electronic trade is within Asia itself. It's very hard to isolate it um, and, and tell you specifically how much of it, because if I tell you 80% is to Asia, part of it could be going to Hong Kong uh, before it heads to Taiwan, before it heads to China. But you know that it lives, that ec ecosystem is within Asia. So it's not 100% value add from China. In fact, I believe China says its value add to uh, that iPhone is much less than the total value exported because of that supply chain linkage. But that comes with other issues as well, right? So the Asian countries, because of their interlinkages, are also at risk uh, as a result of these trade tensions. Francis, are we talking about the end of globalization, which in the corporate sphere, has had a lifespan of, say, three decades. Is that now over, or is globalization just changing its shape, evolving its form? I think globalization is evolving. 
I think technology is evolving globalization uh, because we're moving towards more of a service-based economy globally. And part of that is driven by demographics. The other part is driven by rising incomes globally as people move up the income chain from low income to higher income. There's less goods consumed and more services consumed. So I do think globalization is shifting. And if you're only focused on goods, you're going to miss the other part of the picture, which is growing. The other point I would make on why globalization is shifting and why global trade in particular has peaked is because normally trade is driven by massive investment cycles. If you look back in time, uh, we've had three massive investment cycles. The U.S. industrialization cycle back in the 1914-1920 era, then when you had Japanese and Korean industrialization cycle in the late 60s, 70s, 80s, and then when China industrialized most recently, post-2000. I can't think of another economy that could have as big an impact on industrialization that could drive global trade uh, for another cycle in the near future. Not India? I think India has a lot of work to do, and it's a very uh, interesting economy. I'm very excited about the potential in India, given the changes I've seen in the economy, the reforms that Prime Minister Modi has made. Uh, but it does not move as swiftly as China, as it is a democracy, uh, whereas China has moved faster than the US and any other country that I've seen because it's not a democracy. In fact, if to give you an example on the technology side, how fast it's moved, if you take ride sharing, Uber's been around for more than eight years. It has not reached 50% penetration. China has Didi, which is equivalent to Uber in China. Within three years, they hit 50% penetration rates. This is true of almost any internet category you can think of. They just move at the speed of light. I find it hard to think that another economy that's big enough can move as swiftly as China has. You devote considerable time in your report, Francis, to talking about Chinese millennials and their impact over the next few decades. I found that surprising because there's a lot of discussion about a demographic bomb that's going to catch up with China from the 2030s onwards. Can you reconcile that? Absolutely. When you look at the headline numbers, the Chinese population is slowing and is shrinking, particularly the working age population. And we generally focus on the working age population because they're the income earning population and the income spending population, right? Uh, if you think of the population between zero to 15 who aren't earning an income, uh, they don't really spend the same way. And you think of the population that's 65 and above who are retired, they don't spend the same way. So the thrust of your income power and spending power is within the working population. Now that cohort is shrinking. But within any aggregate, there are always different things to look for. And what's different about China is you also have a backdrop of a growing middle-class population. Now, if you take a big step back and look at the projections 
across different countries, you'll see that the next generation in the U.S. will actually be poorer than their parents and grandparents. That's not the case in Asia because of this rising GDP per capita story, rising income growth, rising uh, and growing middle income cohort. And that's what makes me excited about this group of millennials because they're the ones who are coming of age and entering this middle income category. As you enter that middle income category, your spending patterns change, your incomes grow. And that's what we're excited about. Francis, this is fascinating. We could talk for hours. Unfortunately, we can't. I want to close with just one point. You have a fascinating graph in your report, which gets at a legacy of 2008 that isn't often discussed in the season of Lehman retrospectives. You're saying global trade peaked in 2008. That's not something you hear very often. Absolutely. And that was the dynamic I was describing earlier on. There are a number of reasons why trade grows. One is the industrialization cycle. I don't see that happening again soon. Um, and the just the opening up of economies, which happened um, as the WTO got off the ground and China started opening its doors, that linkage between uh, trade and China drove global trade to a peak in 2008, together, coupled together with the investment cycle. That cycle now has passed um, for a number of reasons. One is uh, China is now quite fully developed. In fact, they're one of the more advanced countries in terms of making sure their infrastructure is in place for the next few decades. The second reason is credit was freely available and that drove investment and the demand for goods to be traded. Investments are very trade intensive because you need to buy materials to build things. Now that the cycle is shifting towards more of a consumption-based cycle and service-based cycle, there's less need for things to be traded. It doesn't mean that there isn't going to be any trade. It just means that the growth will be higher in other sectors, which are uh, less trade and commodity intensive. Francis, thanks for sharing this perspective with us. And we'd love to have you back again to talk about uh, what else you find on your travels and in your research. We'd love to talk to you again. And thank you so much, Dan. Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as podcast destinations such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And you can follow me on Twitter at Moss underscore Eco. Benchmark is produced by Topher Forhez. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.